1: I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Bruce Friedrich is the executive director and co founder of the Good Food Institute, or GFI a nonprofit is working to transform animal agriculture by promoting the development of innovative alternatives to meat and seafood. Bruce has been a guest on the Eat for the Planet podcast before and introduced us to GFI's work with plant-based meat companies and cellular agriculture or clean meat startups. When I first spoke with Bruce a year ago, GFI was just getting its bearings. And while advancements in the plant-based food space were certainly taking off, there were only a few players focused on clean meat. Now, a number of clean meat companies have promised they will have a product on the market within the next few years. And it seems new companies producing everything from clean beef to fish have entered the field. In this conversation, Bruce and I dive deep into what it will take to transform our current food system into a more just and sustainable one. He gets into policy hurdles, consumer perception of clean meat, How growing awareness has helped benefit the meat alternative market and why he doesn't believe subsidies for the meat and dairy industry need to change for alternatives to become price comparable. Bruce is at the forefront of the fight to replace factory farm meat and seafood with sustainable animal-free alternatives. If you are as fascinated with the growing plant-based and clean meat market as I am and looking to understand more about the forces at play that can make or break its future, listen in. Friedrich. Welcome back to the Eat for the Planet
0: podcast. I'm thrilled to be here, Anil. Thanks so much for having me.
1: It's been a little over a year since we first did this. You were uh, on episode number three. So for anyone who has not heard that episode um, and is listening to this first, I highly recommend go check that one out because I think we laid the foundations of what Bruce does at GFI, what GFI is, uh, which is the Good Food Institute, obviously. And some of the work that was happening maybe over a year ago uh, around plant-based meat and clean meat and it's strange to think of it that it's only been a little over a year because um a lot of what we said in that episode has really changed in just one year which which is is a great place to start I think because it just tells you that this space this work that you're doing the the kind of fight to build a a good food system um, is accelerating at a pace that we could have never imagined. So, just at a like what's what's been going on at the highest level in the past one year, and we'll then you know we'll we'll take that off into separate little uh, tangents.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think at the highest level, the work that we're doing across science and technology, uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, policy and corporate engagement. It's just, uh, it's been significantly beyond, I think, our most optimistic expectations uh, and predictions. So, Across all four of those zones, we've just seen a tremendous amount of interest from establishment scientists in tissue engineering and crop sciences and the range of things that would be cross applicable into plant-based meat and clean meat. More and more innovation across the plant-based and the clean meat space, lots of interest from policymakers and real movement forward there, both in the United States and internationally. And then in terms of corporate engagement, they're really big corporations that we thought might take a little while to get on board and be excited about this space. They're getting on board and are excited about this space. So it's really just uh, it's been immensely gratifying and super, super exciting for the possibility to really revolutionize what it looks like to make meat. And when we talked about a year ago, you were maybe a team of uh, 20 people. I think you've
1: doubled in size, more than doubled. Since, yeah,
0: I mean I think uh yeah, I think we were probably like 15 or, or 20 people about a year ago and we're 49 now. So uh we have uh offices now in in India, Israel and in Hong Kong uh and in Brazil. Thank you. And and of course the United States. So uh but yeah, and we're uh, we're hiring in the European Union. So uh it's uh it's really been yeah, it's been great. So one of the things I've been thinking about
1: as uh, I kind of prepared for today's conversation was um, we when we talked last year, you laid out the the kind of the brainstorm that led to the foundation of GFI and the shift in your own personal thinking that we you'd been kind of, you'd been an animal advocate for, for decades and you'd been fighting this good fight and you felt that we weren't really making much progress. Um And then came along companies like Beyond Meat, Impossible Foods, Hampton Creek, which is now Just. And you realize that if you look at it from a behavioral economic standpoint, and we try to tackle the supply side problem, uh, we may stand a better chance of changing the way people eat without them even realizing that they're doing it for some greater good. Um, How has your thinking evolved, right? Because at the moment, if you look at changing the food system- sure it's a mammoth task. And which parts of your brainstorm or thinking do you think were naive and which have been proven wrong? Or maybe you've
0: been proven right on all fronts and you've only gotten more convinced that you were on the right path? Well, I want to take a step back and say, I mean, I think animal protection has not failed. Mm -hmm. There has been a, a lot of, there have been a lot of very exciting developments. I think society as a whole is looking more and more at the way that animals are treated and is becoming more and more concerned. So uh, we have animal cruelty laws in all 50 states. We have ballot initiatives that are passing by the highest proportions of any ballot initiative about any issue. I don't think we could have expected that to happen 10 or 15 years ago. We've seen welfare uh, reforms that big corporations are making, which I think would have been impossible without... The many successes of animal protection but on the issue of, of convincing people that they should stop eating animals or stop eating animal products um, it's hard to it's hard to know what it would have looked like without our efforts but it is just objectively the case that in 2017, more meat was consumed than in any other year, more meat per capita. So it's interesting. I'll say 2017, more meat in U.S. history consumed per capita. And people will go, well, that's just because populations are growing, right? And it's no per capita. Hmm. The average American is eating more meat in 2017 than ever before in U.S. history. And the prediction is that 2018 is going to be even higher. So at least with regard to educating people about the benefits of going vegan or the benefits of going vegetarian or even the benefits of meat reduction, um, maybe it would have been even worse without those efforts. Uh, but it certainly seems that it would make a lot of sense for us to start thinking about ways that we can complement that educational, uh, those educational endeavors. And you know, what can we do? And that's where the brainstorm comes from. The idea that now, wait a minute, uh, meat is made of its constituent parts. It's made of lipids and amino acids and minerals and water. Uh, everything in meat also exists in plants. And we look at the brainstorm of people like Ethan Brown at Beyond Meat and Pat Brown at Impossible Foods and Todd and Jody Boyman at Hungry Planet and uh, the wonderful folks at Tofurkey, Seth uh, Seth Tibbet uh, and Jamie Athos, and just lots of companies that are thinking in a new way about what it means to do plant-based meat. And because plant-based meat is so much more efficient than animal-based meat, it's just true that as it scales up, it will be less expensive. And you look at any other technological innovation where you gave people exactly what they wanted in a new and better way. And every single time, the new and better way completely replaces the older and more antiquated way. So, you know, things like digital photography has replaced film photography, cell phones have largely replaced landlines, driving has replaced horses and buggies. So plant-based meat and then clean meat, because there are certain people who just actually want to eat meat. So um, our hunch is that for the vast majority of people, they're looking for something that tastes fantastic, that is reasonably priced, and that is convenient. Mm -hmm. So we can do that. We can biomimic meat with plants. But there is a... I have talked to a lot of people, and there are a fair number of people that just really want to eat animals. Mm. Uh, But nobody wants the slaughterhouse. Nobody wants the inefficiency. Nobody wants the pollution. So You can grow meat directly from cells, and you can with clean meat, and again, it will be vastly more efficient than industrial animal meat, so that's really the way to go. in terms of, I'm sure there are many, many things that uh, I was thinking a year ago that I mm-hmm. no longer believe to be true, and have sort of left left them in the you know recesses of dustbin of, of my brain. Uh, I tend to focus on the things that are going right and sort right. of maximize those rather than spending a lot of time focusing on the things that uh, that we thought we were going to do that were you know not going to do. I guess one really big thing is uh, we thought we were going to do a lot more with dairy and eggs than we've done so far, um, and just in, in there's just an overwhelming amount to do. On plant-based meat and clean meat, so we've really sort of been focusing on those two technologies. And there's still a ton of stuff that we're you know not able to get to that we were were hoping to and um, still are hoping to get to as we as we uh, expand. Yeah, I mean,
1: it's I'm glad you give that context because for the listener to understand that your focus, the two things we're really talking about today, and we'll we'll dive deeper into each one of them: plant-based meat where it stands today from. Uh, you know, Today, I want to keep things at a system level versus what is one company doing versus the other sure. company, right? Because you can read a news piece and feel like one company is changing the whole world, but let's step back and see what the, as you said, in 2017, per capita meat consumption was higher than ever before. That's the problem we're trying to tackle, yeah. so let's not get caught up with, with you know minor good news here and there. It's important. We should celebrate it, but let's keep our eye on the bigger goal. So plant-based meat and clean meat are the two big solutions that you're focused on. And uh, what you're basically trying to do is get consumers to shift to these forms of meat um, versus meat that is out of our, the livestock system, which is predominantly from uh, factory farming or industrialized animal agriculture. And in thinking about you know, how do we transform that system, I feel there's a lot of attention being paid to the products itself which I think, of course, needs to be because without the products, you wouldn't bring about change. But I started doing some reading about the meat industry and how it came to be the way it became and kind of in the context of American history in general. And you look at every step along the way when we went from the railroad being used to transport live animals into urban... Because urbanization played a big role, population rise and urbanization. Sure. And then we had the problem of you had to transport live animals into slaughterhouses in cities, uh, which was inefficient. Plus, it created a you know huge mess. People were not happy about the fact that you had farm animals being transported in, in say, New York City or Manhattan, where we're at the moment. Uh, and then you had the smell and you had all that. But there's enough, if you go back and look at... Uh, Uh, the Vanderbilt's and the Rockefeller's and the fights that happened in New York City, a lot of it had to do with you're densely packing human beings in urbanized environments. And they decided that, firstly, they don't want to grow their own food. And secondly, they want to be further and further away from food, especially in this context, meat. And so the next wave that came about was uh, dressed meat or meat that was slaughtered somewhere else and then transported. Uh, And if you look at history, it's interesting that when that even that small move, it seemed to be, you know, it seems logical that you would slaughter the animal somewhere else and then transport a finished product. It was met with resistance because the slaughterhouses in the cities and the urban areas felt threatened. And then you follow that train of, you know, that cycle and the evolution of um, the industry. That was maybe in the late 1900s. You look at what happened in the early um, 20th century even, it was a steady, you know, the story really is that people wanted cheap food and they wanted it available, as you know, you know, the price, taste, and convenience, right? But they didn't really care what went into making the food, which is why we ended up in a system eventually after the wars of the World War I and World War II where we ended up with um, relying on a mechanized industrialized food system because firstly we had labor shortages after, during and after the war, Plus, we had to keep we had to keep our economy running and our economy had started to shift to a consumer economy where the way you keep the economy booming is you keep the price of um, of meat low. you keep the price of food low enough so people then spend their money on luxury products or stuff that you don't really need I don't know in books and in this in this day and age iPhones and iPads and uh, TVs and other things and cars so, we, and that's what led to farm subsidies so that you keep the supply high and you, bring, you keep the demand high and you keep the prices artificially low. So everyone's out of benefits. The farmers are happy. They're getting paid. And of course, consumers are happy because everything's cheap and convenient and tastes great and seems to be clean and healthy. The reason I bring all of that up, right? And the long the reason to give that history firstly is when you started to tackle this problem, I'm pretty sure you're super smart. You've probably looked into all of this already. Is... What you're trying to do is, a, is, a, is a, what not just you in terms of the entire good food movement with plant-based meat and clean meat specifically, is not just create a product. You're trying to create a new system and you're going to face all these same challenges um, that any small upgrade in the system has faced. Where do you think the most amount of energy has to be spent to make sure that the system changes along with just the products? Because you can have a great product, but if you don't change the surrounding system and every node in the system, you're going to end up with points of, of resistance. So maybe we can start there in terms of what your experience and if you have any thoughts on on the history of meat as well, I'm, I'm happy to go into that.
0: Yeah, no, I think uh, I think you sum that all up uh, very, very nicely. And as we as we think about points of resistance, I think you can think about it in the in, in sort of either direction. You can think of it as points of resistance, or sort of what are the key things that keep meat uh, cost effective and everywhere. And a couple of things that do that, one is the degree to which the government is involved and supportive, and the other is the food industry itself. It's colossal. So you've got just major, major food corporations that are seriously invested in the way that meat is made now, the way that meat is distributed now. And a big part of that means that meat is everywhere, and it means that meat is, relatively speaking, cheap. So a big part of what we're doing at GFI, and we really thought it was going to take a lot longer than it has taken... Uh, to get to where we are now, but a big part of what we're doing, our corporate engagement department, our director there, Alison Rapschnuck and her team, um, are really focused on working with the meat industry itself, so that they will see this as opportunity and not threat. And that was certainly our vision, kind of out of the gate, was to create these relationships and work with meat industry players, because really nobody, not in the meat industry, not anywhere, is committed to the way that meat is made right now, um, other than maybe. You know, cattle ranchers, I think mm-hmm. is is about it. So the people who are growing chickens and growing pigs and slaughtering chickens and slaughtering pigs, like they don't like their jobs. Those aren't really jobs worth having. The people in the meat industry, they're not excited about the slaughter of animals or the inefficiency or the pollution or sort of any aspect of the current way that meat is produced. So sort of from the beginning to the end um, if we could feed the world, which is what they are committed to, if we could feed the world with high-quality protein, and that high-quality protein is actually even more profitable because it's more efficient, um, what we're finding is really not resistance uh, at all. Uh, so the biggest food companies in the world are like actually enthused about this sort of a transition. Um, at the government level, we have made fewer inroads, but so far... The inroads that we have made have been very positive, and our sort of brainstorm about clean meat and the government is that most governments care about things like food security. They care about food safety. They care about keeping antibiotics working. Um, One thing that happened earlier this year, the UK government released a report, and it said that antibiotic resistance is going to cost the global economy $100 trillion by the year 2050. And they said antibiotic resistance is a more certain threat to the human race than climate change. So I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about antibiotic resistance and the huge contribution to that problem of dosing animals with antibiotics. I mean, if uh, if listeners want to scare, you know, Google the end of working antibiotics. And if you want a real scare, add the word China. Some of the antibiotics that are banned in the rest of the world are common in China, but obviously these superbugs don't know national or international boundaries. So reaching out to governments, a big part of what we're trying to do with our Um, overseas operations. It's really two part. Um, Part one is finding scientists to do this work. And part two is convincing governments that they should put lots and lots of money um, into these alternative protein technologies as a part of their basic science budget, their agricultural budget, and whatever budgets they're tapping to deal with things like food safety and food security and sustainability and climate change, meeting their obligations under the Paris Climate Agreement. So Basically, I think uh, the way that you just sort of framed the history – Um, A big part of that framing of the history um, involves the cooperation of the government in the transformation of the meat industry. And then it also involves the meat industry itself figuring out how it could continue to exist as efficiently and effectively as possible without sort of, you know, alienating people who no longer wanted slaughterhouses in the central city. So they move out. Um, I think uh, a big part and probably the most important stuff that we're doing at GFI and the most important part... Uh, for these companies, and really anybody who wants to see this transformation, is making sure that folks in the government are prioritizing it, both so that the regulatory space is competitive. Um, and doesn't sort of preference traditional meat products, mm-hmm. um, and then also so that some of the money that the government is putting into research and development across these other areas where plant-based meat and clean meat are a big part of the solutions, some of that money should go into plant-based meat and clean meat research, and then also working with the industry itself, which we have found so far to be, you know, nothing but really really good.
1: Yeah, and maybe you already have something like that, but uh, uh, and feel free to interrupt me if that's the case, but. What would be really helpful, and I mean, I'm sure that's something you maybe even talk about, but maybe don't have in the way I'm going to think about it, is some sort of a, a real ecosystem map of what the meat industry is and what are the different stakeholders as part of this industry. Stakeholders, <laughs> stakeholders, right? Pun intended, and uh, and also what the pro- policy framework is that currently supports that, whether it's in in the U.S. or in Europe or parts of Asia or Africa or South America and maybe a customized version of this for each uh for each government saying okay this is the lay of the land of this industry here's how the system runs and let's all firstly agree that this current system is is unsustainable from a planetary as well as a revenue standpoint because we're going to run out of land and fresh water and forests and all that stuff.
0: I will just interrupt you quickly to say, mm. I mean, th- this I think is a is – a, this is the way – this is actually one of the things that I've sort of flipped my thinking on. Mm. Uh, because exactly what you're describing is how I was thinking about this previously. Um, and I've had multiple conversations with people who are sort of uh, policy experts, policy wonks, and they pointed out to me what I think is true, which is that we can leave all of that alone. We can leave the previous, the, the current structure alone, mm-hmm. and it's going to be really hard to sort of cripple subsidies or change the way things have been going so far while still arguing for uh, benefits for the plant-based meat and clean meat industries. So we don't actually have to get rid of subsidies. We don't have to get rid of the sort of revolving door. We don't have to change anything about the way the system works now. And because the system is propped up by so many you know, hundreds of millions and, yeah. and billions of dollars, and this is how it's always been done, actually getting rid of any of that's going to be really tough. Uh, But clearing a regulatory pathway for clean meat, Mm -hmm. we're meeting with excitement on both sides of the aisle, from the Freedom Caucus to the Progressive Caucus. People are supportive of that. Uh, Getting money for plant-based meat and clean meat research, money's already in the budget for lots of things where this is the answer to those things. Mm -hmm. Um, So getting money allocated to this sort of research, helping these industries, helping to support something where the support doesn't exist is going to be a lot easier um, and equally valuable. Compared to trying to sort of cripple something that you know is the size of Goliath, so though the, I I think what I I get what you're saying is
1: that you're bringing plant-based and clean meat to the table without necessarily taking anything away from the. Current meat-filled dinner table.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you look at something like subsidies, we hear mm-hmm. from people all the time who are saying, "What are you doing about subsidies?" Mm-hmm. And you know, why aren't you working on on getting rid of meat subsidies? And both A, I mean, I think uh, Lewis Bullard did some really nice uh, analysis at the Open Philanthropy Project about the fact that subsidies, you know, they decrease the price of chicken or beef or pork by you know one or two percent, maybe if that. Um, so they're big numbers, but spread across the billions of pounds of meat that are consumed, they're really not that mm-hmm. big of numbers. Um, And it's also the case that people on both sides of the aisle are not excited about subsidies. I mean, we had uh, Barack Obama came in as president thinking subsidies were a bad idea. George W. Bush thought subsidies were a bad idea. Bill Clinton, George H.W. Bush. Like, we're probably not going to accomplish something that the past four presidents of the United States we're unable to accomplish. And even if we did, um, it would be, you know, it'd feel really good. We'd be excited about it. Uh, But in terms of actually decreasing meat consumption, probably not that much. Mm. Uh, But what we probably can do and what we're meeting with real excitement about, I mean, even talking to people in the meat industry itself, even speaking at the American Meat Sciences Association uh, convention, um, and certainly across Congress with very few exceptions. You know, you talk to the Freedom Caucus, they're all about Technology—they're all about capitalism, which is what this is. This is helping competition. You talk with people on the progressive, you know, wing, and they're—we're talking about sort of solving big problems like climate change and food sustain, sustainability and food safety and this sort of thing, and we're doing it through technology and markets. So they're excited too. So, but the—don't you think the challenge then is if you're just cr- you're clearing
1: the entry point for plant-based and clean meat, which I get is is a right way to look at it. It's a is an easier way to get in, right? Don't you then think that you're going to eventually reach a point where you subsidies and the way our current policy framework is set up is going to get in your way because you will never be able to match the price? Oh, um, I think we
0: can, though. I mean, you, you know, you think about something like chicken. Mm. Uh, chicken is the most efficient meat. And yet, according to the World Resources Institute, chicken takes nine calories in to get one calorie back out. So that's nine times as much land, nine times as much water, nine times as much pesticide and herbicide, you know, sort of all of the extra stages of production. I don't think the subsidies add up to nearly enough. To outweigh the degree to which the inefficiency of meat is yep. going to add to the price, so there are some programs uh, like the um, the checkoff program. Mm-hmm. I think that definitely increases demand, and increased demand increases the price probably significantly more than subsidies. But I think we'll see that sort of shift um, as long as we can continue to keep the meat industry itself and the food, you know, sort of big food uh, excited about plant-based meat and clean meat, and I think they're going to stay excited about it because it offers significantly more profitability for them over time, um, I think we'll see a lot of those sort of programs, if those, those programs will either go away, and there's certainly a lot of you know antagonism toward them on both sides of the aisle, um, or they'll become more egalitarian in, in terms of the products that they support, and they'll bring plant-based meat and clean meat you know, sort of under their wing as well
1: yeah because if the if the industries the big food companies that are now largely on board with this idea at least the meat processors right as you said the the cattle ranchers are probably upset uh if they are on board and and they're hedging their bets on this as well, so they're saying let's 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 do what we do, but let's also keep an eye on this so it doesn't come in um steal our lunch um and They may, you know, as they see that there's momentum, as also on, and you know, you're very focused on the supply side, as things start to change on the demand side and continue to evolve, right? I recently read 39% of people are are seeking more plant based uh, alternatives or foods. That continuing education, access to information, the beauty of the internet and social media, films and books and, and documentaries and podcasts, even. People are getting aware and they understand more about their food. They're, you know, back to the, as much as we as Americans have wanted to be disconnected from meat production, uh, now that we're finally reconnecting with it generations later and understanding how horrific and barbaric and unsustainable it is, we are now looking for better alternatives. So as that momentum happens, your thinking, I suppose, is that... um, we would have already cleared the pathway for the entry of plant-based meats and clean meats into the marketplace with the help of the meat companies and the supporting infrastructure that they already have. And then at the same time, the increase in demand is just going to further add fuel to the fire burning in plant-based meat and clean meat movements. And then slowly, you know, the the, the bigger problem, as I was saying, the ecosystem of the animal agriculture industry will start to will start to eventually just transform.
0: Exactly. Yeah. No, I think it's... uh, We we were speaking when GFI started about the idea of disrupting the meat industry. Hmm. And then we started having really excellent discussions with Tyson Foods and ADM and other, you know, massive food conglomerates, um, including meat and meat industry conglomerates. And it became very, very clear that none of them are wed to the current system. None of them are excited about slaughter. They're not excited about the inefficiency. They are excited about anything that will allow them to do the very noble thing, feeding the world, high quality protein, putting you know dinner on people's tables. That's what they want to do. That's what they're committed to. And, uh, and they're excited about the idea of doing it in a way that is more sustainable, that doesn't require slaughter and so on. I mean, one of the things I saw recently that I found... Really pretty interesting was uh, the Sentience Institute mm-hmm. released a re- released a poll, and among the other things that they found, they found that almost half of Americans want to ban slaughterhouses. Uh, the meat industry was, as you can imagine, incredulous, and so they went to a researcher at Oklahoma State University, the Aggies, yeah. you know, the uh, Oklahoma State Cowboys. Um, they went to a researcher at Oklahoma State and they said, you know this can't be true. Do a real study of this. We want to be able to, you know fire back. And, uh, and the guy ran the, ran the numbers and he found that 47% of Americans want to ban slaughterhouses. Mm-hmm. 98% of Americans are eating animal products. Probably 95% or more are eating meat. People are eating more meat than they ever have per capita in, in U.S. history, and yet forty-seven percent of them want to ban slaughterhouses. You know they want to ban slaughterhouses, but you know not. You know it's a it's a it's sort of a light thing, but there's a discomfiture about the way that meat is produced among the general population. If you ask people, you know, if you describe what happens in a slaughterhouse, or you describe genetic breeding for pigs and chickens, or you describe the drug regimes, like people, no, I don't want to eat that. Mm. Uh, but they don't know. You know they don't know that that is the present system. So, so as we shift toward plant-based and clean meat, as people are educated, as they have, you know, two products that give them exactly what they want, but one of the product doesn't come with the issues that they're not excited about, I think it's absolutely a transformation. It's not mm-hmm. a disruption. And I think the meat industry will be significant allies in this because really who knows more about chicken? Than, uh, than Tyson yeah. knows about chicken. Who knows more about meat science and making meat that people want than meat scientists? And if we can shift them into plant-based meat and we can shift them into clean meat, I think that's absolutely the way to go if we want this to happen as quickly and efficiently as possible.
1: Yeah, um, that's all right. And I have like I have one more thought on on the resistance that you face or may face down the line before we kind of move on to something else. Um what about say the the corn and the so- uh the corn and the soy lobby, and what about of course you mentioned cattle ranchers? They we you know from some initial reports there've been some expressed some concern with the labeling issue around meat and whether plant based and clean meat should be even called meat and or beef. Any resistance or conversations you've had for that front? How are they reacting to the fact that the big meat processors? are embracing this um, because, you know, that's purely an economic decision at the end of the day. And maybe it's a sustainability decision. But at the end of the day, there are certain stakeholders who are going to lose in this, in, in this transformation. This, everyone can't win unless you really work with everyone and give them new jobs. So what about them
0: and what is being done to address that? And what have you heard from them? I mean, I think most people win. In this transformation, so yes, it's certainly the case that with any, you know, with any sort of disruption of any industry or any transformation of any industry, there are going to be uh, some people who. Are displaced. Mm -hmm. Um, Our hope is that people will be displaced in a way that is good for them. So, I mean, as you know, the vast majority of of corn and soy farmers experienced "go big, get big, or get out" in you know the 70s and 80s, -hmm. and they were not excited about that. And tons of them did get out. Um, Some of them stayed. The same thing with pig farmers. The same thing with chicken farmers. And for the most part, the farmers involved are not excited about that. One of the things that a transformation toward plant based meat offers. Uh, is the ability to go back to the sort of farming that got people into farming in the first place. So it's, uh, I mean, one of our sort of big revelations at GFI, which I think I probably talked about on the on the last podcast, but it was, I mean, I think it's worth, it bears repeating, is that um, in plant-based meat, up until Ethan Brown comes along, so five years ago, up until five years ago, people really were just thinking about, let's take the waste product of soy oil, Uh, So the soy protein, let's take the waste product um, of wheat uh, carbohydrates. So the waste product of sort of bread and noodle products. So the the wheat protein, let's sort of mash that together and call it a veggie burger and we will sell it to vegetarians. Mm -hmm. And the market was assumed to be sort of the vegetarian and the meat reducer market. And that's not an insignificant market. It's 500 million, 600 million dollars a year. Ethan Brown comes along and says, no, our market is the meat. Market, and that's $200 billion a year. So that's, you know, 800 times larger, uh, this market. And optimizing crops for plant based meat really hasn't happened even with soy and wheat yet. And pea was just sort of an accident of faith, Uh, not faith, fate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ethan read about uh, some research that was being done at the University of of Missouri with uh, pea protein, and that sort of became Beyond Meat over time. Uh, But it could have just as easily been lentils or chickpeas or millet or sorghum or a wide variety of products. So I think what's going to happen as sort of the big meat, uh, the big food companies start putting more R&D resources into plant-based meat and clean meat is we're going to see other products explored. So Bill Gates, he wrote this blog, The Future of Food, um, and he points out in this blog that 92% of plant proteins have not been explored for their capacity to be turned into plant-based meat. Probably a lot higher than that in terms – and and the proteins that have not been optimized for plant-based meat are higher still. So too the technology – uh, requires a radical um a radical shift in the technology to make it more efficient um, and cheaper, but just the plant protein side of this, I think is going to be very, very good for farmers as this transformation happens. Um, it will allow for less pesticides and herbicides. It'll allow for less monoc- monocropping. It will allow people to be successful, even if you know smaller than sort of these massive farms. And then the sort of massive industry of feed crops, I mean, that's really part of the food industry. That's not distinct. So those folks are going to profit from this shift as well. So what their business model is going to will look like will be a little bit different uh, But they can be on the front lines of this or they can sort of be kicked, dragged kicking and screaming. And so far, it looks like they want to be on the front lines.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's you're, you're so right about that. And maybe from a policy standpoint, uh, more of the focus needs to be on how we can uh, redirect some of those research dollars to plant proteins um and perhaps you're already doing some work so maybe this is a good yeah, time yeah that's a to that's a
0: big part of what our what our uh, lobby shop is doing both in the United States and internationally and we were very very excited we um, actually managed to get some language Um, about crop optimization into the report that accompanied the Senate Agricultural um, Appropriations Bill. Um, And then for the first time ever, the National Institute of Food and Agriculture put out its call for proposals for research proposals. And in there was the language that we wrote that we got into the Senate Ag Appropriations Bill um, to the report for the bill. Um, so uh, and and now we're working with researchers to actually take advantage of the fact that NIFA is interested in is interested in funding this sort of research, and our hope is to do something similar with clean meat. So on the basis of not that much lobbying, I mean this is just. Illustrative of the degree to which mm-hmm. both sides of the aisle are excited about using markets and technology to solve problems, and if it doesn't have a price tag on it, it's already in the NEFA budget. Mm-hmm. Um, just getting NEFA to actually prioritize some of this research—very, very, very exciting—and I think uh, can be transformational. All
1: right, that would be a good point for us to um, to segue into talking a little bit more about the current state of the nation. We'll start with plant-based meat. Um, When we spoke about a year ago, there were a handful of companies in the space, and uh, many of them had not gotten the rounds of investment that they now have, or the distribution that they now have. There was no Beyond Burger in uh, TGIF. There was no um, Impossible Burger in White Castle. Did I get that right? Yes, you the Impossible Burger in White Castle. Can't keep up, see? (laughs) Um, What's the state of both from from a research standpoint and innovation, just kind of a where things stand at the moment.
0: Well, there's still not a tremendous amount of open access innovation. So our our hope and expectation, especially now with uh, the National Institute of Food and Agriculture actually prioritizing this sort of research, um, we also have gotten a five hundred thousand dollar grant. So we will be announcing a call for proposals focused on open access. Uh, plant-based meat research. We also have another $500,000 grant uh, for clean meat research. So we're we're soliciting proposals for science in both of those fields. We're not doing social sciences grants. Just hard science research into plant proteins or um, the way to scale up plant proteins and then similarly with clean meat proteins. Not a lot of open access research, but we have been extremely happy to see, as we've been talking about a little bit, uh, the degree to which some of the really big food companies like Unilever and ADM and other really big food companies are excited about plant based meat research. So our hope and expectation is that they will be doing a fair bit of internal work Um, on plant-based meat and protein optimization. And then it's been pretty great to see like Kellogg's, which owns Morningstar. Mm -hmm. Um, They are a gold level sponsor of our conference Um, and Kraft Heinz, uh, which owns Boca. Um, We expect them, hope that they'll be sponsoring our conference and we have actually co-hosted a couple of events with them. Um, We're also talking to Corn. we're talking to Tofurky. um, A lot of the really sort of big stalwart uh, legacy companies uh, have seen what happened with Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods, and they are stepping up their game. So a lot of that is going to be protected by IP, but we're talking with all of those corporations about um, what you and I have been talking about, about the degree to which there are many, many other plant proteins which have not yet been optimized, about the fact that even soy and wheat have not been optimized. And we think a lot of these food companies are going to see the opportunity here and start putting a lot more money into, this, uh, into plant-based meat R&D internally. And in terms of products or new companies, what are you most excited about that you've
1: seen lately? I know you've uh, maybe not directly through GFI, but New Crop Capital had a hand in um, a couple of startups that are working on seafood solutions to uh, plant based seafood, basically. What else has come about in the last one year or maybe recently that you can talk about publicly?
0: Uh, yeah, so I mean, uh, so uh, Good Catch, which is plant-based seafood, um, also called SeaCo. The, the underlying company is called SeaCo, and then the brand is called Good Catch, and they'll be uh, launching in the next six months, I believe. And they are uh, sponsoring one of the receptions at the Good Food Institute. So they're um, a silver le- silver level sponsor for the Good Food Conference, and then they're also going to have their uh, tuna rolls at uh, at I think the first evening's reception. Um, and the product is really fantastic. There's another seafood company called Ocean Hugger and another one called New Wave, uh, considering how bad uh, both aquaculture and commercial fishing are uh, for our oceans, how inefficient, um, and how unkind to the animals. We're pretty excited to see the the plant-based seafood space really beginning to explode. That's pretty great. Uh, there's a company that also came out of uh, the Good Food Institute that we're excited about called Dow Foods. And Dow Foods is basically going to be a sort of VC accelerator for plant-based and clean meat alternatives in China. Mm. Um, so that's, uh, that's exciting um, and interesting and good. Uh, really have been delighted to see how successful Good Dot has been. So that's the third company um, in that India, came right? directly out of uh, out of GFI. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. plant based meat in India, and they've been just phenomenally successful in India. So those are three things that were particularly uh, three companies that were particularly excited about. There are a lot more. I mean, it's a little bit like asking, you know, who's your favorite child? <laughs> so. Um, lots of companies, also of course, that we had nothing to do with, that are that are coming up that we're excited about. There are a couple of clean meat companies that are focused on sea animals. So mm-hmm. one of them is Finless Foods, uh, which is very exciting. Another one is called Blue Nalu, um, also very exciting. The uh, the folks who are founding those companies, I think, are very very impressive and and really excited to see the amount of the amount of um, excitement and attention being paid to to sea animals and sort of transforming the seafood industry as well.
1: Yeah, and you brought up Clean Meat, so we'll talk about it because um, when we when you chatted last year on episode number three, the first time you were on this podcast, Clean Meat was at an early stage of uh, getting attention, getting funding, and uh, there weren't that many startups in the space. I think Memphis Meats at that point was probably the only one, and perhaps besides the work that Mark Post has been doing. Uh, but that's changed now. We have, as you mentioned, a few companies uh, a year ago, I even had questions, doubts about whether this was viable technology, and we we chatted about how there was some difference in opinion from people like Pat Brown from Impossible Foods versus uh, who would obviously makes plant based meat and plant based protein, uh, talking about whether that was better or more viable as a technology versus clean meat. I feel like some of those arguments are, you know, we're way past them at this point. I think it's. I can we can safely assume that clean meat isn't some smoke and mirrors technology and it is coming. Uh, Where things at the moment and how close are we to seeing something in a grocery store or in a restaurant? Um, Yeah, where
0: things stand at the moment. So it's pretty remarkable to think about the degree to which the clean meat industry has just exploded in two and a half years. So two and a half years ago, when GFI was getting started, there were no companies that had incorporated, and Memphis Meats had been accepted into IndieBio. Mark Post was looking at starting MosaMeat. There were three people, uh, co-founders in Israel of SuperMeat, that were beginning to think about founding SuperMeat. But that was it. And none of them had incorporated as corporations. And now there are more than 15 clean meat companies that have incorporated as corporations. There are at least another half dozen that seem very likely uh, to launch. And a whole bunch of different companies have raised millions of dollars each. And Memphis Meets has raised almost, I mean, a little north of $20 million in there uh, across their seed and their Series A. So it's uh, it's super exciting, and I think it is absolutely coming. So there is still a lot of work to be done. Um, Memphis is going to need to raise more money. All of these other corporations are going to ra- need to raise their Series A, their Series B, their Series C. But... Uh, It does look like there will be some products commercialized maybe this year. That's what um, Josh Tetrick and Just are saying, that they will have something uh, for sale this year. I would guess it's probably, you know, in one or two restaurants at a pretty small scale, but who knows? Uh, And then I think uh, other people are predicting. Mark Post said he expects to have something for sale in the Netherlands by the end of next year. And I've tasted multiple clean meat products and can tell you that they taste exactly like I remember meat tasting (laughs) Uh, more importantly, people who actually eat meat are, are tasting them and saying, yes, it's meat. So, of course, it tastes exactly like meat. And I think we're going to see commercial products and you know, maybe in a, uh, to a significant degree will take three to five years. Um, cost parity, probably another five years after that. But uh, a significant clean meat market, I think, is, uh, is definitely coming.
1: And, of course, clean meat is a completely different ballgame when it comes to, maybe not, when it comes to policy hurdles or a regulatory framework. Is um, How cl- close are we to understanding what that's going to look like? And is it going to be an easy pathway to get these products to the market? Or are we going to face
0: some sort of hurdles and approvals and public outcry or Industry it, outcry. It, I don't think we're going to see industry outcry. Mm-hmm. I think the industry is going to be fine with sort of whatever happens. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we we saw we saw again the cattle ranchers pushing back a little bit on the idea of calling it meat. And that was that was interesting. So the U.S. Cattlemen's Association, which is a, a sort of very small trade group, uh, petitioned USDA having to do with labeling of both plant-based meat and clean meat products, and uh, basically they got pushback from the national cattlemen's. National Cattlemen's Beef Association, which is the really big Mm -hmm. uh, trade group, which said no clean meat should be labeled meat and pork and beef and everything else, which we thought was really encouraging. Um, So too, the North American Meat Institute, um, they seem to be welcoming of the clean meat products. So I don't think we're going to see industry pushback, but it will be, I mean, it will be interesting to see how the whole thing plays out. So very recently, the FDA uh, issued a statement saying the current regulatory regime is fine um, we can approve and oversee the introduction of clean meat in exactly the same way that we approve and oversee the introduction of of any product there are no new regulations required there are no new laws required and uh, it was interesting USDA pushed back on that and said, you know wait a minute this is meat we want to have something to say about this. Um, so that that was a little surprising. It appears that FDA issued their uh, statement on this without actually consulting with USDA, which I think surprised a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a congressional briefing on clean meat uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, which uh, so Barbara Comstock, um, the the two co chairs of the Research and Development um, Research and Development Committee, um, co sponsored. The event. Um, Bill Foster spoke and introduced it and was super bullish on clean meat. Um, So, I I mean, I think we're going to see in the United States and internationally, I think we'll see a fairly smooth uh, regulatory path forward. Remains to be seen a little bit in the United States. We certainly agree at GFI with FDA that the current regulatory structure. is up to the task, uh, but it may be that the the White House has expressed some interest in getting involved. USDA would like to have a little bit more discussion of the topic. Uh, one of the really cool things about regulatory, though, is is it's going to be an inter- it's an international product. So um, we are super bullish um, on very swift regulatory approval and oversight in Israel and Singapore. Um, Israel and Singapore, those governments, as well as Japan, those governments have actually uh, supported. Uh, a fair bit of, of alternative proteins work and it looks like they're going to be supporting even more so they've invested in some of the companies um, and also done some d funded some r d uh, in these sectors on their own um, so we think that there, we think there may be a regulatory dominoes situation happens mm. so Singapore Israel China some of these countries say absolutely to clean meat and then other countries do, don't want to be left behind and they very swiftly approve as well our expectation is that in the united states which is where the preponderance of companies are uh, that will also see fairly, fairly swift um, approval and a regulatory regime that is not particularly onerous.
1: Yeah. And it's it's interesting that you're looking at this globally. Obviously, from the get-go, you've had a global approach to plant-based meat and clean meat. What was the thinking behind that? Is it because some of the companies were from outside the country or because it could have been, you know, just focusing on the U.S. alone is a, is a big enough task um, Do you think it distracts from your mission in trying to focus on what's happening over here? How are you able to to have offices around the world and have these initiatives and work with companies
0: and focus on regulatory systems around the world. It seems like you're, you're, you're getting way big. Well, we are. I mean, we're picking our battles. So we're mm-hmm. not working with entrepreneurs and startups outside of the United States. We're not working mm-hmm. much with corporations outside of the United States, except somewhat responsively. And even there, like we're working with PHW Group, which is the largest uh, chicken producer in Germany. Uh, but that's our U.S. operation that's doing that. We're working with Maple Leaf, which is the largest meat corporation in Canada, but it's our U.S. operation that's doing that. So our overseas offices are really pretty focused on, A, helping governments to see the advantages of plant-based meat and clean meat R&D, so getting governments to actually support these things, uh, support these technologies with resources, and then scientists, because obviously some of the best tissue engineers and recombinant protein uh, scientists and crop sciences specialists, like they're not all in the United States. So we have a lot of you know sort of hotshot scientists who have cross-applicable skills into plant-based meat and clean meat. Um, but so does the Netherlands. So does Israel. So does Singapore. So does China. So do a lot of other countries. So um, we really we really are focusing our efforts um, overseas on policy. So getting money. Uh, for plant-based meat and clean meat R&D. Regulatory, so we want the first company to just roll out the regulatory red carpet and say, we care about climate change. We recognize that to meet our obligations under the Paris Climate Agreement, we need to keep, well, the the agreement says Mm -hmm. we'll keep um, climate change under two degrees Celsius by 2050. Uh, We're not going to do that by education. We need to be thinking outside the box. This is what we want to do. Um, we think there's a very high likelihood that we will get governments to support this. And we think there's a high likelihood we will get governments to roll out the regulatory red carpet. So we're spending a lot of time and resources on that. Uh, because once one government does, we think a lot of governments are going to fall into line. Um, and then finding scientists, because uh, you know, U.S. does not have a lock on the scientists who should be ushering in this new field. So that's really our focus internationally. And we're saying no to you know lots and lots of things. So where's your, um, you know, let's kind of
1: talk about GFI a little bit back, bring it back to where your current um, needs are in terms of, you know, a lot of people listening to this podcast either already work in the food system or are looking to be a part of it. Uh, what kind of skills and background does maybe GFI itself need, but also this industry at
0: large, what's lacking out there that you wish we had more of? Um, I mean, I think the big thing is scientists. So, I mean, at GFI, we have uh, a bunch of job openings. So we have openings in our corporate engagement department. We have openings in policy. We have openings in international. Um, we have two science roles open for plant-based meat and clean meat. We also have a food scientist role open. Um, And if you talk with the folks at Memphis Meats or Mosa Meats or really sort of any of these companies across the industry, um, they're hiring for kind of everything from operations to finance to everything. But the stuff where they're really having trouble finding people um, is in the in the hard sciences, so the people to actually, you know, who are tissue engineers or uh, biochemical engineers or you know all of the the sorts of roles where we need people who have this expertise, and maybe they're going into chemicals or they're going into medicine or they're going into drought resistance or whatever else, uh, to take those skills and be aware of this entirely other industry. So one of the things we're doing at GFI to try to solve this problem is we're actually, we have already launched fellowship programs um, on half a dozen of the top business school campuses. So people who are interested in entrepreneurship and business, we want them to be thinking about starting companies or joining companies in plant-based meat and clean meat. And we are in the process. We've just identified the top 12 or 13 uh, university campuses across eight or nine different factors for plant based meat, and then the top 12 or 13 for clean meat. And we're going to be launching fellowship programs on these campuses. And our fellows will be spending time basically organizing events and writing for the university paper and meeting with professors. And basically, anybody who has the requisite skill set to be a scientist in the fields of plant based meat and clean meat, we want them to be aware of the fact that this industry exists. They can do a lot of good in the world, which is something that people care about vocationally. They can also uh, do very well for themselves and their families if they sort of shift into this direction. So uh, it's the scientists who are the pain point, um, and it's something that GFI is, is going to be putting more and more resources into, into sort of solving that problem.
1: And as there's more funding, I think in this industry, as some of these companies bring their products to the market, I think it, it, it'll be a viable career choice for someone who goes into the hard sciences, who typically would not be thinking of this as a career path. Uh, but I think you've got to be there. I think what you're doing is right. You're, you're going to those universities, you're creating programs, you're you're educating them about the opportunities here, which are way beyond you know just making money. Of course, everyone wants that, but well we, what do you really want? you have the opportunity to be a part of uh, of something that could be world changing and that you, you those don't come along too often
0: yeah. I mean, the, the sort of theory of vocational happiness, the the three things people are looking for is they're looking for a, a high degree, you know, as much autonomy as possible. They want to sort of write their own vocational adve- adventure. They want to be challenged, but not too challenged. And they want to feel like their job is, is meaningful in the overall sort of scheme of the world. And uh, so we're focusing um, really on that one. Although I think at this point, you can get all three of those things. If you're you know, currently using your tissue engineering expertise in medicine, um, actually, like taking the basic science that you've learned and thinking about how to cross apply that to food. That seems like it would uh, be pretty exciting across all three of those factors that are really important to people and as they're picking their jobs. But I think most people just don't know about them. So mm-hmm. um, we're gonna be uh, we're gonna be hiring a whole bunch of campus fellows that are focused on making sure that at least everybody who has the capacity to be a scientist in this field, at least they know that the field exists and they're thinking about their opportunities. And, you know,
1: I want to also talk about your journey in this uh, as part of GFI. You know, this has been pretty entrepreneurial in some sense because you've started from the ground up with GFI. You and I first talked about this before GFI even launched, I remember. And uh, and then I've seen this go from that to what it is now, um, which is this global organization in many ways. How has that been for you? It's uh, This is, you know, you've obviously had a career leading up to this point, but this is a completely different... This is a completely different ballgame now. So what's your journey been like? What have you learned? We can probably
0: spend an hour just talking about that. We could. (laughs) We could. Uh, It's been immensely gratifying. It's just been immensely gratifying. So, um, yeah, I mean, I was doing animal protection for decades and uh, I guess nonprofit management um, in animal protection. And uh, so to be approached and encouraged to launch this new organization and to have the support of... uh, Milo Runkle and Nick Cooney and Von Venabala and the whole team at Mercy for Animals who recruited me to to launch the Good Food Institute, um, and then worked with me to sort of build it up from you know, basically nothing. Actually, nothing. I mean, it was uh, wasn't a website, didn't have a name. It was the Future of Food Foundation at that point. Um, we were all on the phone, basically punching punching in URLs uh, <laughs> to try to figure out what to what to name the organization, and we ended up landing on on the Good Food Institute, which has worked very well for us. and um, just the amount of the amount of support from certainly the animal protection community, but also the recognition that this is, you know this can help with um, environmental harm. it can help with public health harms, it can help with nutrition. it can help with this sort of range of issues. and the degree to which we we've found people who are excited about, solving problems by making the choice that is ethical and humane and better for the environment, making that the default using markets and food technology has been just deeply, deeply gratifying.
1: Yeah. And so what's the next one year going to look like for you? I'm not going to look too far ahead. We're in, a long, we're in for the long game over here. Uh, the next one year, are your big priorities. Uh, if you could really make a wish for something you really need right now, what, what would that be to make the one next one year easier?
0: Give me a sense of that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's uh, it's interesting. People say, like, what's the most exciting thing that's happening at GFI? Um, and for the vast majority of what we're doing, we're the only ones doing it. So uh, if you, we have four programmatic areas, science and technology, innovation and entrepreneurship, policy and corporate engagement. And then we have our international operations, which are really focused on the policy and the science and technology side. And there's just really exciting stuff happening across all four program areas, And it's interesting to me that when we were first sort of sitting down and doing our strategic planning, which we redo every six months, but when we were first doing the strategic planning at the end of 2015, like these are, this is how we were thinking about GFI and that has not changed. But the opportunities across each of these four programmatic areas and the opportunities internationally just get more and more exciting. So my expectation is that we will grow these departments. We will do more to reach out to key scientists, to get them involved in this field. We'll do more to encourage entrepreneurship um, and launching more companies. We'll get deeper uh, into the policy, and I expect to actually get significant amount of money allocated in the United States and around the world for the Uh, plant-based meat and clean meat R&D. And then in corporate engagement, we'll solidify our ties across. uh, We're just launching a program focused on grocery stores um, and improving especially the promotion and the placement of the plant-based alternatives in grocery stores. And we're meeting with a lot of enthusiasm from the people who run the marketing departments at some of the largest grocery stores. We're doing more and more uh, with chain restaurants and deepening our ties with the sort of big food corporations, expect to be doing all of that um, at a deeper level. And then uh, we don't yet have anybody in the European Union. I, I would like to see basically the GFI model and not just the policy on the science side. I think the policy on the science side is is the most important internationally. Um, And I think we need to step up our policy and science and technology games internationally. So I imagine we'll expand that in Israel, in India, in Brazil, um, in Hong Kong and China. So we'll grow those departments and then really launch in a big way in Europe as well. So um, I think the next year, a lot of the story of the next year is going to be international expansion, but also expansion across the other program areas.
1: And, you know, international is definitely needed. At the end of the day, I keep trying to talk to people about how we need to step back and look at the global solution to our food problem and to our planetary crisis and to our public health crisis. It isn't just going to be addressed by focusing on people in New York City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Boulder, or yep. Chicago. Um uh, we have to think global and we have to, when we say what is a good food choice and what is a good food system, we have to think about how that is going to feed nearly 10 billion people by the year 2050 and not just think about where things stand right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, those are the two big questions in food, right? How do we feed almost 10 billion people by 2050? And what do we do about climate change? Like, those are the two things when you think about food technology, that's what people are thinking about. I think people are going to be thinking more and more about antibiotic resistance. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a terrifying thing that I think is just really big. Beginning to be, get on people's radars, but I think uh, I think it's going to going to take a position um, on the same scale as sustainability, feeding ten billion people, um, and climate change. And plant-based meat and, and clean meat are the solution to those problems. And the U.S. is less than five percent of the global population. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you're trying to come up with global solutions that you rely on Silicon Valley, and that's sort of what plant-based meat and, and clean meat has been doing so far. It's been relying on Silicon Valley. It's been relying on Silicon Valley investors. A few of those are overseas investors. You know, Singapore and and uh, and China have some some significant players in plant-based meat and clean meat via Silicon Valley. But this is uh, these are global problems. They demand global solutions, and we intend to be. You know, talking with the people who can actually help um, and the people who can actually help um, are the scientists and and the governments in all of these economies all over the world.
1: Well, Bruce Friedrich, this has been an absolute pleasure as always to catch up with you. Thank you for keeping up the good food fight and for helping to build a good food future
0: through the Good Food Institute. Uh, Thanks no I mean you've you've been uh, as you right as you noted we've been talking about this since before GFI mm-hmm. uh, existed just as you were beginning to form one green planet I think also so it's been really nice to have uh, one green planet as a as a partner on this journey and you in particular as as such a supporter of GFI and everything that we're doing and these technologies so yeah thank you thank you to you as well it's really just a pleasure to be here
1: no I think we're in the we're we're, we're in the beginning stages of something really big and it isn't just happen on its own we've got to keep up the the hard Work daily, and uh, and I want to be here to support and kind of cheerlead as much as I can. Tell the stories of the companies and the people behind this new food movement. And at the end of the day, what is happening right now, I think, is is really game changing. And we owe it to ourselves to sometimes just sit back and and reflect. Um, as much as we look forward and look ahead at what needs to be done, is to reflect of how far we've come. Uh, and never lose sight of that and uh, not get too caught up in uh, in the minutia sometimes to forget that what is the big mission and the why of why you are doing what you do and what, why I'm doing the thing I do. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, that's what's going to bring more people into the space. Uh, they may not come in from an animal protection standpoint like you did or from an environmental standpoint like I did they're just going to realize that this is the common sense solution to the entire planet and to the future of humanity, really. Um, and I think so. We're, I'm, I'm, I have no doubt that we're going to succeed. And uh, I'm going to be, we're going to have many more of these conversations going forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I think all of what you just said is true. And I think that's going to be the motivating factor for a lot of people. But um, I really, I mean, I, I think uh, what we are talking about, because it is just, it is simply more efficient. It gives people what they want at a lower cost. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of like, uh, as we were talking about a minute ago, it's sort of like uh, digital photography, replacing film photography and cars, mm-hmm. uh, replacing horses as a way to travel, regardless of all of the sort of ethical benefits. Uh, it's also just so much more efficient. Uh, but it, but it, like you rightly said, it doesn't happen on your own. Like we, we do need to be there pointing out to scientists that this is something that they can do. We do need to be there pointing out to governments because so far governments are not putting a lot of money into this space. All of the money that's come from government has come in the last few years, and it's just you know four governments that are doing it. So we do need to be the catalyst uh, to make sure that this stuff happens and to make sure that it happens as quickly as possible. Uh, but I think for for a lot of the corporations involved and for a lot of the sort of government officials, there's an efficiency factor uh, that is probably as important as, as even the ethical factors.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, we're on our way. So once again, thank you,
0: Bruce. Thanks, Nell. Really a pleasure.